This is Kevin Evans teaching the chapter by chapter life class at Crossroads Assembly of God. And uh, we are in Mark. And Mark 14 is a very long chapter that has like 71 verses and it's loaded with content. And we have spent two weeks trying to dredge our way through this one chapter, even though our standard is a chapter per lesson, but, but it's just not going to happen. So we are going to finish up chapter 14, uh, beginning with verse 66, and then we will venture on into 15 and get as far as we can. <clears throat> Mark, <clears throat> who most people believe is John Mark, and a disciple of Peter, uh, just to recap, has basically written the first gospel. This was the first one written, and everything else kind of references Mark in the other gospels, so we know that it was first. And he, just as to review, he uh, was not a direct witness to most of what he talks about, he is recording the story of Christ as it's been told to him through the various apostles that he has met and all these other believers that were there. He is in direct contact with all the witnesses. Uh, and we are guessing that he was at the arrest because of the reference to the young man who uh, uh, tried to get away from the arrest and they ripped off his clothes and he ran home naked. That was, that we, we, most scholars believe that was Mark himself and the only reason he included that was to uh, basically add uh, credence to what he's talking about to show that he's an eyewitness. Uh, because he's writing to Christians, we assume here, uh, Jewish Christians, and he's also making a lot of references in his book that he assumes that they are going to respond to. And, and we'll see one of those in this next chapter as well. So when he refers to the young man who ran home, they know who that young man was. They've heard that story, you know. And so that's kind of what that's about. Uh, but he didn't want to write his own name all over the book because it's not about him, it's about Christ, and in the literary tradition of the day, you didn't talk about yourself, you know, uh, you, uh, you referred to yourself anonymously. Okay, so we are at 66, and, and I'm going to have to read this. I've lost my glasses, internet world, so here we go. Uh, verse 66, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and then he went out into the entryway, running away from her. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, because they recognized his accent. Uh, he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So Peter, the number one apostle, probably the oldest of the 12 apostles, 
who is the spokesman for the apostles, one of the inner circle who had earlier in the same evening told Christ that he would die for him and denies that he would deny Christ, here he is under fire denying Christ. You know, fear really has an effect, doesn't it? So he's trying, he's kind of following at a distance as Christ is being taken into trial. And there's an angry mob behind. It's not a friendly one. Uh, they are the, the mob that was coming along to see the show. And they're, they're hoping to see a good beating or something. You know, it's kind of like a, I don't know. Somebody wanting to see a violent show. The wrestling fans, they're wrestling fans. That's why they're there. And so as they're standing around waiting on the judges to come up with something, they, 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 they figure out he's not one of them. His accent's a little different because he's from up in Galilee, like all the apostles are. Uh, they sound a little different. There's Kenny. You didn't bring treats for everyone? That's so, so hurtful. Wow, I feel, feel okay. It's like one of those days. Uh, where was I? I lost my train of thought. Peter, yes, yes, yes. So, so Peter is, um, uh, he, 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 um, fear. Why did this happen? God has a purpose for everything. Do you think there's a purpose in Peter denying Christ when he was arrested? And I realize I'm speculating, and we were getting into the Gospel of Evans here. So, you know, take, take, that, take that for what it's worth. Um, there was an evangelist once, and I, I read this story. I forget who the evangelist was, but he's traveling. And um, he comes into this town, and he, they've advertised that he's going to have this big uh, 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 you know, rally or whatever. And he's speaking. And he gets a letter that morning from one of his old acquaintances from years before when he was in this town and not a Christian. And the letter says, if you speak tonight in that church, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to tell them everything that you and I did while we were living here years before, before he was a Christian, which evidently involves some theft, alcohol, and debauchery. So he was hoping to embarrass him, because this was obviously not a Christian, and he's kind of offended that his old drinking buddy is now an evangelist. So... The evangelist takes this letter, which is basically blackmail, and he goes to his uh, lectern and he says, I received a letter this morning, and he reads the letter to the congregation, and he confesses everything that the guy accused him of was absolutely true, and then he talks about how the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ has changed his life and he is a different person now than he was then. 
and that he still takes responsibility for his actions as a sinner, but he is a sinner no more, and if God can save him, then God can save anybody. And it turned into a huge, successful rally, and many, many people seeing God's grace in that preacher's life made a decision for Christ and came forward. Sometimes God can use a sinner as a witness. Now, Peter was an enormous evangelist and traveling evangelist, taking the word to, to unsaved peoples, uh, Jews originally and then later to, to uh, uh, the Gentiles uh, as we get into an Acts. Don't you think this story came up do you think that people could go, yeah, well, you denied him, didn't you? You know, after you traveled with him for three years. This is a convert that's denying Christ, you know, and, and still he, he won't stand behind him. Don't you think that becomes a, a point in his message? It would have to be. Um, and I think also, I don't know how to say, put this. He was the leader he was the big shot. He was a little bit arrogant, you know? I will never deny you, Lord. What you just told me, God, isn't true because I would never do that. You know, that, that's his attitude. And there are many times when Christ, you know, kind of chastises Peter while Peter, is, you know, is, is blathering on about, you know, how we're going to build temples and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Peter is trying to drag Christ's message into Peter's message. Peter has some, some arrogance about him. And, and as an arrogant man, I should understand that, you know. Uh, that needs to be humbled. You know, if you're going to listen to God quietly and follow his direction, you need to be able to, to put God first before your plan. And before that happens, you have to figure out that you're not all that. So after Christ, after Peter denies Christ at his moment of arrest, yes, yeah, yeah, you do, do it, do it your, your, my own way. Yeah, here, here's my plan. Put your stamp on it, Lord. Uh, you know, he, he, I think he, he surely feels guilty for not being there at, at the moment. This is Peter's moment to be the man, and he's cowering in the back, running from little girls, warming themselves by the fire. Uh, this is not bravery. So I think, I think Peter is a different person after this, and I think it's humbling for him. And I think that humbling was important to his future. Sometimes when God breaks you, there's a reason that you're getting broken. You know? And in Garden, he was ready, in garden, he was ready to die for Christ. Yes. Take, take up the sword and just better, you know. And he did. He sliced off a guy's ear. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah. You know, so, so. That's, 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 yeah, he, he was there. Let's start the revolution. Ah! Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. See, see, now we're losing. 
Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't want to be in the lizard side. Yeah, I mean, if you die a martyr. Yeah, that's not good. Coked out in flames and glory. It but, sure but, does. But it's being arrested and chastised and, yeah, no glory to that. Nope, nope, no. So, chapter 14 ends with, with, uh, with, with uh, Peter disowning Jesus. So now, chapter 15, which is what we intended to get into today, uh, we, um, Christ is going to go before Pilate, who is the Roman governor, and we go through his trial and execution, all in one big chapter. So uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, squinting. <clears throat> My gla- you know the glasses that I lost at your house when we were cutting down the tree? Yeah, sort of the same thing happened again, but I don't have all the pieces anymore. So anyway, yeah, it's time for new shake glasses, I think. Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you will call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Okay. Weird custom. First of all, the trial. Uh, The Jews are a defeated people. And they are uh, underneath the Romans. They can't do anything at all without the Romans approving it. The Romans are basically the original mobsters. And what they want is to not be bothered by these ridiculous little foreign people that they're controlling. All they want is their money on a regular basis. They are looting the world. That's what the Romans do. Now... As long as you're paying them their tribute, their taxes, their whatever, they're pretty cool with you running your own country because that's a lot of work running your country. Much rather you do the work and give them the cash, and they're happy with that. You know, that's the Roman, the Roman deal. So they have gone to the Sanhedrin, who are the lawyers and cl- clerks that work for the temple that ran Jerusalem before Rome was there, 
And they say, you guys just keep doing what you're doing. Just you can't do this and you can't do this and don't kill anybody. We do that for you. And uh, you just keep the gold rolling in and, and, and we'll be good. In fact, if you want to fleece the people a little bit along the way, we don't care. As long as we get our cut, you know, all's, all's good. You know, the, the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in the Roman system. Oh, wait, that sounds a lot like... Anyway, um, so, so the Romans would not allow the Jews to execute anybody. They also wouldn't allow the Jews to have a trial at night. All trials could, had to be public and not private because they're a, a, a controlled people and the Romans had to know what they were doing. So Christ is arrested, and as we discover in a different uh, gospel, which is, I think, uh, Matthew, he's taken to Annas, who is the head priest, in the middle of the night, which is a violation of Roman law. But they wanted to get their act together, and they wanted him to be executed quickly. They wanted quick justice. And they wanted him executed before any of his followers noticed that they took care of him. It, this was a, a stealth action. So they arrest him at night in Gethsemane. They take him immediately to the head priest in the middle of the night against the law, where they discuss what charge they're going to bring against him. And they decide on blasphemy. He said he's the son of God, and that's obviously blasphemy. Uh, we don't believe he's the Messiah like they say he is, so he's crazy. We need to get rid of him, and he's a challenge to our authority anyway, so there. So that's what they decided the charge would be. So the next morning, they need to have another trial in public where people can see and they wait till just daybreak because that's the law. They have to have it during the day, but they don't want people there. So they're, they're all assembled waiting for the sun to crack over the horizon so they can have this quick trial and go take it to the, to the Romans. They are abiding by the letter of the law, but not by the spirit of it. Oh, wait, isn't that what Christ has pretty much been criticizing them about from the beginning? You know, it, it's, uh, they're, they're trying to make the law work for them by subverting it, dancing along the edges of it. Does that make any sense, you know? So, so they have this quick trial uh, at the temple, and then they immediately march him to the Romans because they can't execute him. They would, they would stone him right there if, if they were in charge, but they're not, and they don't want to anger the Romans over this. So they take him to Pilate, who is the Roman governor, and they wake Pilate. I'm sure he's in the middle of breakfast because this is way early, you know? And uh, they march him in, and they accuse him, but not a blasphemy. If they went in front of the Roman governor and said, he claims to be the son of God, the Roman governor would say, this sounds like a little religious dispute, and this has nothing to do with me. You know, he doesn't care about their religious problems or whether or not the, 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 the Sanhedrin are jealous or anything like that. Also, he has an interesting thought since uh, Romans in themselves were kind of religious. He might be, oh, really? Oh, I want to hear this. It might, it might, that might have been a possibility. Also. They believe in a lot of different gods, and they're kind of open to the idea of you having one. Yeah, uh -huh. that's fair. Yeah. So. Okay, that's, that's fair. 
So he says, so you're the son of the God. Yeah, tell me about that. You know, yeah. that they worship sons of God. I think Hercules was one of them, uh -huh. right? Okay, that's a good point. <clears throat> anyway, uh, he doesn't see this as necessarily being a, a sin. And so they don't, the, the, and, and the, the Sanhedrin, excuse me, understood that. So they can't bring this charge against him in front of the Romans. It's not going to stick. So on the way from his death sentence at the temple and the Roman palace, I forget what that's called, but it's stated in, in the scripture, uh, they change the they change his charge, and when he gets to the palace, they basically accuse him of sedition. They tell him that the pilot that, that uh, he's declared himself the king of the Jews, and since he said he's the king, then Caesar isn't the king, and therefore he's telling the people not to show honor to Caesar, which is a bald faced lie. You know, they're not even twisting the truth anymore. That is just plain not what Jesus said, you know. And so they bring this lie against Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate questions him. So that's, that, that, that's kind of where we are. So really there are three trials here. There's the trial at night that's illegal where they figure out their plan, the meeting before we meet the meeting, as we used to say in education. Uh, and then they have the uh, trumped-up semi-legal meeting at daybreak just to follow the Roman law, and then they rush it to Pilate so that they can convince Pilate to uh, take care of their business for them. Uh, yeah, of course. Well, he's, the, he's judging. He, I'm sure he judges all kinds of civil problems all the time. The Romans were not shy about crucifying people uh, or, or imprisoning them or whatever. Uh, value of life was actually quite low during the, the, the Roman Empire. Uh, so I think Pilate has condemned a lot of men to death. Uh, and, and, and he's just going through his job in keeping the peace in this area. And, and, and he answers to Caesar back in Italy. And all Italy wants to know is that there's not an insurrection. They don't have to send the army in. He doesn't need extra people to take care of his business. And the gold keeps flowing. That's all they want, you know. Yeah, well, I was thinking Pilate, though, saying that uh, he didn't necessarily agree with it. They made a decision to crucify him, not Pilate. Sure. And Pilate is wanting to keep the peace with the Sanhedrin, though. And he's going to make a judgment call. And if he can execute this guy and keep the Sanhedrin on their side, that's probably suits him. It's, it's not like he's worried about, you know, killing an innocent person. He does that every day. Yeah, but I was saying, he asked him, what you want to do with Right, him? yeah. I say, right. I, I'm going to unconstitutional. Like, what y'all want to do? Sure. <laughs> okay, so that's the first part of that. Uh, Jesus... Only answers, it's as you say. He doesn't try to explain anything. <clears throat> the Sanhedrin are twisting his words around. He asks him if he's the son of God, which he is. So he says, it's as you say. It's not a lie. But he doesn't bother offering any other answer. Sometimes silence has power. Sometimes... You can keep your mouth closed and let your enemy destroy themselves in the debate. You know, uh, 
you know, and, and that's kind of where Christ is. You know, they're making all these accusations, and it doesn't really list what they were, but Pilate listens to that, and they, he's going, no, I didn't. You know, he doesn't trust them. He knows they're faking it. He's seen liars before, and he knows they're hoodwinking him. You know, and Christ does nothing to answer to it. If Christ started to answer to it, he could actually condemn himself even more by trying to defend. It's probably easier, you know, he's probably doing a better job of defending himself by not defending himself. I was about to say something really political and I decided not to. Okay. Um, yes, I will. There are some politicians that I can think of that would probably be much better off not tweeting about absolutely everything that happens everywhere in a really uh, uh, corrosive way, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that would be the politician <laughs> I'm thinking of. Maybe just not responding to something is more of a defense than responding. He should, he should take a lesson from Christ. Okay. Um, all right, so Christ doesn't respond. And now we have this really weird custom. It was a custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. So we're about to have Passover. And in honor of Christ's, uh, excuse me, God's uh, saving the Hebrew people from the Egyptians, which a bunch of plagues, the Jews regularly, or I guess the Romans regularly, uh, release a criminal. I guess it's a picture of redemption. And so this is a, this is a tradition. And so all these people show up at, at the Roman palace in the morning. I guess it's in the morning still. Uh, and they call for Barabbas. Who's a murderer. Now, a week ago, Christ entered Jerusalem, and there was a huge crowd shouting Hosanna and laying down fronds and sweeping the way in front of him like a king as he entered, and they're all declaring him the Messiah. Now there's a crowd calling for his execution. And a number of scholars kind of question What's going on there? Why did the people's will change? Yeah, because they were asleep. Uh, because it's a different crowd. These, these are the same people. Um, why would a whole crowd of people be at the governor's palace at daybreak in the morning? It would be because they know that there's a tradition of releasing a prisoner and I would suggest that that crowd is Barabbas' friends. I don't think that they are Christians. Uh, they happen to be there, and uh, the, 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 the Sanhedrin rushed Christ in for this little trial. And now he's going to, you know, Pilate steps out, who knows, 30 minutes later, hour later, and... And, and, and offer it, it goes to this ceremony that is, you know, established in Jerusalem. So he calls, who do you want? And they all shout Barabbas. Okay, I hope that I can read my own notes. 
There was a group in Jerusalem at the time. Don't judge me. I can't see. Okay. There are probably typos all through that. I could not see what I was writing this morning. Okay. Um, I wrote it down. Sassini. I think that's how you say it. There was a group, the group of people, S-I-C-A-N-I. They're called the dagger bearers. That's what it translates to. And what they were were radical Jewish nationalists. See, the, the Romans had crushed Jerusalem, and they wanted Israel to be back. And so they are patriots, and they wanted to overthrow the Romans and get Jeru Israel back in charge of being Israel. And what were they going to do to do that? We're going to kill every Roman here. You know, and of course, they don't have the power to do that. So they all start carrying daggers, and when they can get a Roman guard by himself somewhere, they stab him and move on. You know, they're, 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 they're terrorists is what they are. And we do not know for a fact that Barabbas is one of that group, but Scripture does tell us that he is a convicted murderer. And evidently very popular with the crowd. So you would think that he, you know, I think it's a short step to say that he was part of the Sassini, Sassicani, the dagger bearers. And so um, they're there to get their man out. You know, he, he's a popular criminal. He's Jesse James. You know, he's, 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 he's fighting for the people as he kills the Romans. So, of course, if they can get him out, then they can. And so all of uh, the Sakani are out there, I'm guessing, Gospel of Evans again. And they're waiting for this opportunity to call for Barabbas. Now, we have all these priests to show up. And the last thing they want to do is release the innocent man that they're railroading. So they urge everybody else to yell Barabbas. But I, th I don't, you know, I think if they were a bunch of Christians, they're not going to yell for Barabbas. I think they were already there, ready to yell for Barabbas. And so they shout out Barabbas and they release the murderer and they execute the innocent man. Hooray, the Sanhedrin win. Because all the Christians were asleep. Oh, there's a sermon right there in that line. Because all the Christians were asleep. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. Uh, moving on. Uh, the next segment, Christ is turned over to the guard. So this is verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. That is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And then they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. What a fun time. These are the Praetorian guards. They are the house security force for the governor's palace. They're 
They're Roman military, but they're kind of a special unit of Roman military. And they maintain security on the, because the governor lives, Pilate lives in the Praetorium. And so they're there as his protection. They also enforce anything that, any decree that comes out of the Praetorium. And what does, what decrees come out of the Praetorium? Executions, you know? Their job is to execute people. That's all they do. They, you know, when they're not, when they're not killing somebody, they're standing by a door somewhere, guarding a door to the praetorium. They've got all kinds of duties. Think of them as the kind of the secret service for the Romans, you know, with a nice execution thing tacked on. Well, they're used to this. This is routine. So they entertain themselves by mocking the prisoners that they're about to execute. I think of, of everything that happens to Christ, I think this is the least of it. This, is, th th this isn't personal. This is routine. Uh, I think, you know, they, when, when they execute a prisoner, when they, they make the prisoner carry the crossbeam to the ex place of execution, and then there are four guards. They call it a hollow square. There's a guard at each corner following the prisoner as he walks, and the guard on the front left holds up a sign for everybody to see what he's been accused of and why he's going to be, why he's going to be killed. And so he's being killed because he's the king of the Jews. That's what the, the, the Sanhedrin have accused him of. So that's what they write on the, on the placket. And so they're mocking him. I assume that if you were a thief, they mock you as a thief and, I don't know, steal your eyes first or something. You know, they're going to do something. They're entertaining themselves, making the punishment fit the crime. Well, he's been accused of being the king of the Jews, so they dress him up like a king. Purple is a royal color. Uh, the, the, the dye for purple is extremely expensive, and to have a purple robe is far more expensive than any other. And so they went and found themselves a purple robe, which is probably a uniform, and stuck it on him. And they, they made him a mocking crown uh, out of something scratchy, you know, th thorns. And uh, they, they ridiculed him and spit on him and beat him with his own scepter. This is a bunch of frat boys having fun. And then they took it all off and went back to work. We had 30 minutes to torture the prisoner, might as well. Right? That was a little creepy, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I apologize, Internet land, for whatever that just sounded like. Okay. <laughs> you know, but when I was in Saudi, they yeah. used this Christian rock saying that Jesus was only the king of the Jews, not the king of Israel. Oh, really? Yes. That's interesting. You know, they say, you read the Bible, it tells you that Jesus was the king of the Jews only, not the king of everybody. Well, they really did read Acts, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> you should point out which part of the Bible they oh, did. Oh, I did the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay, okay. It's kind of interesting, so. Okay. How do you think, you know, everybody takes a little bit out of the Bible and say this? And sure, this, sure. Not using the whole story. Oh, that's an old debater's trick. Yeah. You, you don't ever want to use all the reference. You, right. you just, just the part that works for you. Okay, so now we, we're through mocking him, and it's time to take care of business. This is the same day, 
and uh, they're, they're walking him out. So, a certain man from Serene, Simon, the follow of, father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see which would. Uh, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The the written notice of the charge against him read, "The king of the Jews." They crucified two robbers with him, one in his right, one in his left. Those who passed by. Uh, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down and cro- uh, from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, this king of the Jews, king of Israel, come down from the cross that he may see and believe. The, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. That's interesting. I never noticed that before. Yeah, that's in another gospel, though. See, Mark is Mr. Uh, short, short sentence. You know, he's, he's got the basic structure of the story, and when we read the other gospels, it fills in all the details because he irritates all the apostles by not having all the details in there. And that's why Matthew wrote his book. It's why Luke wrote his book. You know, it's all, it's all to flesh out what, what Mark put down. Okay, let's back up. Uh, Simon. What an interesting character. There's all kinds of speculation on who Simon was and who Simon became. Uh, Simon is from Serene. Serene is a city in Africa. Now, this is Passover. We've already talked about how there's something like 3 million people coming into Jerusalem. Uh, There is a tradition among Jews that if you live out of the country, uh, you can, you you observe Passover in your country, but one one time in your life, you are expected to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and take Passover at the temple one time. And so there are always foreigners, all of these Jews that live way on out wherever, coming in during Passover for this one pilgrimage, and that's why all these these people come back in. We can assume that Simon is a pilgrim that has come in for Passover, and he's he says it was coming in from the country. He wasn't necessarily there for the big execution. He's traveling the same road as the execution. And a Roman soldier, uh, if they want to impress someone into service because they are the ruling party, takes their, their, their sword, their little gladius, and they tap your shoulder with the flat end. So if they tap your shoulder with the flat end, you are now their temporary slave, according to Roman law. And you have to do whatever they ask just for that job, and then you can go. 
And Romans do that to, to, you know, the subjugated peoples all the time. Would you find that irritating if you're going about your day and you've got a schedule and you've got this meeting that you're going to and some cop comes along and taps you on the shoulder and he says, change that tire for me. I don't wish to get my hands dirty. And you have to stop and change the cop's tire before you go on. Well, that's the Roman law. You can see why the Jews would be a little irritated by it all. So Simon, a pilgrim, gets tapped, and this prisoner has collapsed under the weight of the, the crossbar. I'm sure this is not the first time this has happened. He's already been beaten uh, with, with whips. He was scourged before the whole thing started. He was scourged with, at, at the temple, and now he comes in bloody and beat up And when the Romans get a hold of him, and they work him over and mock him, and now he's supposed to carry this crossbeam uh, up the hill, I think it was up the hill, to Golgotha, wherever that was, and be crucified, and he collapses. He doesn't have the strength anymore. He's been losing blood all morning. So he taps Simon. Well, I'd be irritated if I were Simon. Of course, I'm easily irritated, as you all know. And he carries the crossbeam. But at some point, something happens with Simon. I don't think he was a Christian believer. He, he, it says he was coming from the country. He wasn't part of this crowd. He wasn't watching this and, and there aren't many Christians around him anyway at the crucifixion that was the point they were trying to keep him away from his followers uh, he gets tapped into this and he carries this crossbeam and there's an effect he recognizes Christ he sees his spirituality he sees whatever it is and it is assumed by most scholars that Simon becomes a Christian because, because, oh, yeah, you're about to pull up Simeon or whatever, right? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give, give me two seconds and I'll let you tell me that, okay? All right. He refers, the, we can learn from Mark that, that Simon is known to the Christians because he refers to his sons. Simon, and he's got those two kids, Rufus and that other guy, because Rufus is the only one I ever remember. Yeah, Alexander. Well, he assumes that his readership knows them, that, you know, and so because he's writing to his friends, and so they know this guy, and so he's, he's, he's hung around. He wasn't just passing through as a pilgrim, or at least he may have started that way, but, but now he's part of their movement because he's known. And so... Most scholars assume that he, he becomes a Christian. Later, Paul is writing to, I assume that's what you're about to refer to, right? What, okay, you, you want to explain? Okay, Paul is writing to, uh, what, what was the book? I forget. The, the epistle, one of the epistles. He references Rufus, and he thanks Rufus and his mother, who are great Christians, and uh, his mother was the wife of Simeon, I think that's right, and which is just another form of Simon. It's spelled differently, but there, there was multiple languages going on in the original documents, and most people assume that Simeon, the father of Rufus, is Simon, the father of Rufus. You know, and so and so he becomes uh, a disciple. And he was probably black. 
because he's from Africa. Maybe. That's a big maybe. We really don't know. Okay. Um, so are we done with that one? Okay, no, that was just, okay. Uh, and then they divided his clothes between them. Uh, Jews wore five different garments, usually. There was an undergarment, there were the sandals, and then there was an overcoat, and I, I forget what they all were. And there are four soldiers that are in the empty square that marched him there as part of the Roman procedure. And part of your, I don't know, pay as a Roman when you're executing somebody is that you get to loot the prisoner. Now, I probably, the prisoner is usually not really well loaded at this point, you know, but he's, he's, he's wearing some clothes. You get the clothes. So they supposedly divided up Christ's four minor garments between them. You take the sandals and I'll take the undergarment. And then they have the, the, the cloak, the, over, the, the, the big cloak, that's the, the, the showy piece of garment, the one that everybody sees. It's the most elaborate and the most valuable. Well, that's number five. And so who gets that one? So they gambled for it. And they all, you know, I don't know, flipped a coin or whatever Romans do, tossed sticks. And once they uh, gambled for it, they, they, they gambled off his coat. So that was kind of normal procedure, too. Uh, he was crucified nude, uh, even though in all of those Michelangelo paintings, they, you know, he, he's wearing a loincloth or whatever. That, uh, no, that got gambled off. So, if I understand the procedure with a crucifixion, uh, there is two bars. It's, it's more of a T. You know, we usually think of it as a cross like this. There's no top piece. It's a T, and uh, in most cases. And there's a notch cut in the crossbar and a notch cut here. And so what they're going to do is drive that notch in so it holds in place. There may have been a nail, but probably not. If it's good woodworking craftsmanship, they ought to be able to just drop that, that bar in there and it'll, it'll be secure enough. So they nailed it, they dropped the bar in, they nail his hands to the bar, and then they pull his knees up. And you often they would tie the legs to the bar. And sometimes there would be something called a saddle. There's a little two before sized chunk that they added to, to, to the cross so that he could rest uh, between his legs so that when they wrote, brought the cross up, his weight would be supported by that saddle momentarily so that the nails didn't tear out of his hands. Because if they didn't have the saddle and they raised him, the sudden drop would usually tear through the flesh. And even if they ran it through the, 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 the wrists, as most people like to talk about. There's more, there's more bone in here, so if you drive it through the wrist and not the middle of the hand, then that, that, that's gonna hold them better. Most crucifixions were, 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 were wrist piercing. And they referred to that as the hand. In, in scripture, there wasn't any real big delineation between them, and so that's probably how Christ was crucified. Um, That's about right. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, it, it would have been something about six inches long or so, maybe a quarter inch wide. Yeah. Uh, they were big old spikes. Yeah. Um, they usually didn't nail the feet, but they did in this case because it specifically said so. You know, so Romans did. Okay, it, I, I read in one commentary that that crucifixions were always consistent because there were laws and standards. Well, that's true, except that. These are Roman soldiers doing the crucifying. And after you've crucified your 50th guy and you've got 30 more, you get kind of bored with it. So what they would do is improvise as they went along. And, and the, a lot of improvisation was, happened along the way. Sometimes they threw in an extra nail. Sometimes they, nailed, they, 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 they hung you upside down like Peter did. That's fun. Let's hang him upside down. You know. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the Romans were really good at the bloody execution arts. This is really getting morbid, and I apologize to internet land. Please don't let your children listen to this conversation. Um, okay. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge above him read, King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one in the right and one in the left. Those who passed by hurled insults. So people are ridiculing the, the, the condemned, which I think was also a tradition. You know, you, you, you came to watch the show and you're supposed to, you know, cheer for your team, which were the Romans in this case, because they wouldn't allow you to cheer for any other. Uh, then they, they taunted him to come off the cross because he said, which, which sounds like the Sanhedrins were kind of uh, egging that on, I think. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure that was the case. In the same way, the priests and the teachers of the law mocked him. Oh, there they are. Uh, and so they mock him. He saved others, they said. Now he can't save himself. So we are rapidly running out of time and we're getting into the good stuff. Okay, I'm going to read the segment on the death of Jesus and we are probably not going to be able to discuss this fully. But we will give it a try, and we'll come back on at this particular point next time. But let me go ahead and read it. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elo, Elo, Lami, Sagabathani. I'm guessing that's how that's pronounced. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. I don't know where they got Elijah from that. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. With a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. The, first, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Jesus, Jose's? Josie, I don't know, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him uh, to Jerusalem were also there. So 
they found out, this is 3 o'clock in the afternoon at this point, and so the, the Christians have found out what's going on, and we're starting to have a gathering of the faithful at, at Golgotha. They've missed the whole trial. He's on the cross, and they're showing up. You know, this is when they find out about it. So, so his mother and assorted women are there, and, and we're starting to have some people come to witness this. Mark only refers to two things that were spoken from the cross. One is, why have you forsaken me? Which is kind of huge. Because what does that mean? You know, this is, this is God being crucified. He is one with God. How can God forsake Jesus if they're the same person? I'm staring at Lester because I'm expecting him to elucidate me on all things theological. We talked about this before, Jesus <clears throat> sure if this is the answer, but I like this answer. Uh, Christ never sinned. And so when we sin, our sin separates us from God. We isolate ourselves from God when we, when we sin against him. Christ has never sinned. He's never had that feeling of isolation from God. He's never prayed in his quiet room and felt like his prayers never got past the ceiling. And we've all had that feeling before, you know? And it's because we're separated from God. Our, our own sins, our own arrogance, our own whatever is getting in the way and we're not approaching, we're approaching God in our own self-centeredness and not in any kind of supplication. Uh, Christ has never experienced that. And for Christ to die, and he is God, for Christ to die, God, the Father, has to break from him. He has to be separated from the Father so that he can die in this sacrifice. So we have this sinless man who suddenly, for the first time, feels completely isolated from God the Father because God pulled himself away. And then, and, and that's what this means. Why have you, what just happened? You know, is what he's saying. Yeah. Um, argument, please. Yeah, well, no, no, I'm not arguing. Um, <laughs> but um, I uh, always thought that uh, Pilate was kind of shocked when Jesus survived the flogging. Because I think that's, you know, I think that's. That, that could be horrendous. Yeah, yeah, that should have killed him, I think, you know. So, so well, yeah, I think that, it was, that was, I think that was, I think that was, what we're showing was a shock for the Roman And these were the Roman executioners. They knew exactly how far they could push right. you right. before, before pushing you over the edge. So they knew when to stop. Okay. Um, okay. So, and we are rapidly running out of time. Uh, one man filled a sponge with vinegar, and this happened earlier. Uh, there were women there who were 
giving myrrh to the uh, to the executioners. And that was probably a tradition. And what that myrrh was an, an anesthetic, and so it would make you feel less pain. It was to ease your suffering. Christ refused that because he needed to experience the full uh, experience. I guess you know he wanted to have a clear mind as he as as he suffers. And so here they're offering him vinegar on a stick. I'm not sure exactly what the connotation is there. Uh, and I've heard the disciples say that he got um, What now? Nothing. I've heard the disciples say that he did get a drink of vinegar. I think he did take the vinegar, but the vinegar isn't an anesthetic. So I'm not sure what the purpose of that was. Uh, and then with a loud cry, says Mark, Jesus breathed his last. Loud cry. Okay. So, so, okay, so the vinegar's bitter, so he's thirsty, so they're giving him... It may have been mocking, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, no, the soldiers had been no help. Um, the second thing that Mark says that Jesus says is a loud cry, and we learn in the other Gospels that it is finished, which is what John said. Uh, some commentators have said he shouted finished, and that's it, because at that point he's, he's done. He's, he's endured all the sin of humanity upon himself. And now he can die the sacrificial lamb and the sacrifice is done. And he's declaring the sacrifice done. And so that's, that's that. And, and so Mark is recording the two most important in Mark eyes things that happened on the cross because they're the two most spiritually significant. You know, and so uh, as we learn other details in the other scriptures with other things he said, they're little they're little side points. Mark is is making is telling a story to Christian Jews in Jerusalem, and he's relating exactly what happened and why this is the Messiah and why you need to believe in him. And it's a real streamlined little book. And I'm going to stop it right there. We're going to come back to the death of Jesus. There are several different points in there that I still want to make, and uh, we'll pick it up there. Okay. All right, signing off.